Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as Waxon. Welcome to the Once a DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now. Whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mix in when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. Welcome back to Once a DJ. I'm here with Red Bull freestyle champion, man about London town and duck aficionado Will Kirby, aka DJ Santero. Have a look at his journey through DJing and how things have changed over the years. Will, how are you doing? I'm really, really well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Were you DJing last night? Uh, I was actually, yeah, uh, till 3am. So yeah, that was a fun Tuesday night. Blimey, <laughs> never ends. You're the guy with this that, that I've had more requests about than anyone else, I just keep hearing, oh, I should get Santero on. He'll have some stories. That's really interesting to me, yeah. Yeah, so no pressure, but you've, you've got to do a good yeah, job. Yeah, I look like, it's a bit surprised, but you know, it's <laughs> nice to hear. Yeah, so... Um, so let's kick it off then. So you're from Bakewell, aren't you? That's right. Yeah. I uh, grew up in the Peak District in a little town called Bakewell. So yeah. Beautiful place. Not a huge amount going on, I'd imagine, for, um, for a DJ. No, it, it was somewhere that I grew up, like, finding it incomprehensible that anyone would stay there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and obviously lots of people do because it's actually having got a bit older and appreciating that side of, the, of life a little bit more you're like, oh yeah, that's actually a really nice place to live. It's lovely and it's you know, a great place to bring family up and all that. But as a 14-year-old that was really into punk or whatever, I was just like, at the first moment I am going to get out of here and go somewhere else. And yeah, so that, that was kind of how I experienced it growing up. So was punk your first musical love? Um, I wouldn't say that was my first musical love, but that was the first thing I got like... And when I say punk, I mean sort of that more like 80s hardcore, who's could do um fugazi type of stuff and i was really into mm. pixies as well and that was like i think that was probably the first thing i got like super super like obsessively into enjoy division and things like that what i was into but like i was i was really into music from a very young age but then that sort of i got into playing the guitar and being in a band and all that sort of stuff really spoke to me i think probably because it was quite easy to play so i could play it as well <laughs> <laughs> So what was the catalyst for music then, um, for the exposure? Because, I mean, I grew up in a little village myself and and there wasn't much kind of counterculture that you'd um, witness or be exposed to. So, like, we, had, my dad had quite a big record collection of, like, all sorts of stuff. He was really into jazz, but then also had all sorts of things. Like, I remember, I remember being really intrigued by Rapper's Delight, actually, because he had that and... Um, you know, various things like that. And then my, I got two older brothers, one of whom went to Manchester University right around the whole Manchester time. So that was, um, I guess, like 89, 90 or something like that. He must have gone there. And so my first 12-inch I ever owned was he bought me 808 State Extended Pleasures of Dance, um, which, like, 
as a first as first 12 inches go that's a pretty cool one to get so like yeah. like that put me on a certain path as well so that's one of the reasons why i got really into, into dance music was that my oldest brother was bringing i remember him playing lfo to me for the first time and just being like what is this this is <laughs> bonkers and like and things like that and josh wink higher states of consciousness all this kind of stuff so i was getting exposed to things like that quite a bit probably a bit younger than other people would have been just because i had an older brother five years older than me he was he was living it all and experiencing it all and then bringing it home and going check this out check this out did you become so would, would you have been at school at this point then yeah yeah so were you kind of like a taste maker at school or anything it's funny you should say that so i never really thought of it this way for years but like in our sixth form common room, there was a tape deck and during break times and lunch times, you could put stuff on the tape deck. And I was like the guy that would just be like, no, 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 you got to hear this. You got to hear this. Check out this B-side. Check out this album track. Check out this th- this recording off of the radio. And at that point in my life, I'd never thought about DJing as a thing because I was like, I played guitar and sang in a band and all this. And that was kind of my world. And looking back at it now, it's like, well, the urge to be a DJ is you listen to a bunch of stuff and you want to share it with a room full of people. And I was doing that age, I guess, 16, but not thinking of it in those terms at all. I was just like, I just want to, I will, you, honestly, you've got to hear this. It's amazing. Everyone else is like, can we not just stick Port's head on? And I'm like, yeah, that's great. But like, <laughs> check out this 60 foot dolls B side. It's amazing. And like, so yeah, there was this kind of missionary zeal that I had that I knew something about music that you all need to know as well. Had all the hard kids left then? at that point because when i was when i was at school i left i left school to go to technical college but it was always the hard kids that got to choose what was on the stereo um so yeah basically like yeah the hard uh, that's an interesting way of putting it yeah the hard kids all <laughs> none of them did a levels like <laughs> so they all they'd all bug it off by then um and before that there wasn't really a take deck for the for everyone so um so yeah i guess i was kind of i was probably the one who got the most music on that stereo by quite a distance yeah, so from that point, where did you where did you go from there to then becoming a DJ then? So I very specifically, I can remember like the moment in my brain when I was like, right, music's what I want to do, where I was watching the Funky Monks documentary of the Red Hot Chili Peppers making Blood Sugar Sex Magic and just thinking John Frusciante was like the coolest man I had ever seen. And I was like, <laughs> I want to be like him. He's, that's it. And then, like, I just got super obsessed in with it. Was I was going to be in a band, and that's what I was going to do. And so that was kind of the plan. And I went to university with a very specific idea that the university was completely incidental. All that mattered was that I was going to go to a city that had a decent rock and indie scene. So I chose Nottingham because I knew about Rock City and I'd heard it was yeah. for that. And I chose a course that had the minimum amount of hours per week where I could choose my. Um, I didn't have to do a dissertation. That was really important. <laughs> I could decide not to do a dissertation. So that was good. Um, and then I could, I got access to my timetable beforehand. So I could pick my, I basically picked a course that meant I was done by like Tuesday afternoon and then had a five day weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was my parameters for choosing a university degree. And I completely tossed it off. I got a two, two somehow, but like I really shouldn't have gone to university or I should have gone and done like a music tech college or some uh, music tech courses so my whole thing was go to uni get in a band become a rock star there you go what could possibly go wrong that's that's my plan and then within like two months of being at uni i was just going clubbing every night and 
sold my guitars, sold my amps, bought decks, bought a like little Gemini mixer, started collecting records. And that's basically, I just completely pivoted from, I'm going to be like the lead guitarist and whatever of a band to, oh, I'm going to be DJ instead. And it just sort of shifted however many degrees that is. Yeah, that, that's a big change, isn't it? Because I do, I do think that's sort of 16 to 25 you find in yourself but mm. that's a very significant pivot to go from aspiring to be John Frusciante to being <laughs> DJing and to be fair like I don't know how good you are at guitar but John Frusciante is a pretty high bar yeah I mean I was never that great on the guitar to be honest I was like an okay rhythm guitarist not a very good lead guitarist yeah and I could scream quite loud as in you know my version <laughs> my version of singing was very much in the Black Francis style just quite screamy so, um, so what year was it in when you started DJing around Nottingham then? So I bought my decks in 97, um, had a couple of, uh, I had a very, my first time ever DJing in front of people was, at, do, you, do you remember a club called Deluxe? No. So there was a club, uh, just off Market Square in Nottingham called Deluxe and I was at a party there and my flatmate or he wasn't my flatmate at that point. He was just a mate from uni. And he somehow talked somebody into letting me go on the decks for a, for a mix or two. And I was a bit like, I didn't really, I didn't ask for that. And he was like, go, well, 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 go and show him what you do. And I then completely train wrecked one mix. And that was like my only experience of DJing out for a little while. So I basically just practiced and practiced and practiced until I eventually um, did a, a, a mate's birthday party. So I probably first DJed out properly in about 98 and then it was only really after uni which would have been like two, 99 2000 that I started DJing around bars around Nottingham and yeah. Sheffield and then like it just kind of, I was I had a day job in fact <laughs> I had a little while where I was betting on horses for a living and then foot and mouth got in the way of that so that's right. that's a whole that's a whole that's a whole weird little it's funny when you look back at your life and you're like yeah that was like a year and a half of my life where I was doing that but um I got a day job at, the, at Prudential, um, just hawking insurance. And once I had enough DJ gigs, sacked off the day job and just focused fully on DJ, which would have been about 2002 or three. Right, because that, that's money, the second professional gambler that we've had on here. <laughs> well, I used to joke that I'd do anything to avoid a real job, basically. And so it was like gambling first, DJing second. If it works, it works. Um, <laughs> So just going back to that train wreck then, so just for any listeners that don't know, train wreck's basically where you try and mix and you mess it up, yeah. everything clashes, your beats are off, um, and it's a pretty horrible experience. Um, <laughs> was that in a big room? No, but I mean, it was like, it was in, you know, there's there probably 50 people in the room or something, and I'm not sure how many of them were that engaged with all the music that was on or whatever, but like it's when it's your first time performing in front of people doing a thing. And then, cause the thing about a track, when you train wreck, it's like you get to a point where you're like, I can't retrieve this. I don't, cause when you get good enough at DJing, it's like, Oh, you can feel, you can hear something drifting out and you just pull it back in and you sort of rain things yeah. in and you can keep it all on, keep it all on the tracks like, like a train's supposed to do. And, um, yeah, with this, it was just like, Oh, oh, oh and I, you know, I couldn't get it back. And it was just, I just felt like the world thought I was an idiot. And of course, probably like two people noticed I, that, that what did that guy just do then? And the rest of them probably didn't care because they're all wasted. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, confidence is such a fragile thing, isn't it? And, and something like that can, can really stress you out. And, and the early days of DJing are scary enough as it is, you know, your hands trembling, trying to put the needle on the record. Um, so that sort of thing can really 
really bruise you. I think, do you know that though, like probably it was a blessing in disguise where I'm the kind of person where that made me just go off and practice and practice and practice. And I just like, I've listened back to a few tapes from around that time. And I was like, because I was mixing on vinyl and I was pretty fucking precise when I was like, for saying it's like on vinyl decks, mix it, you know, it's pretty easy to get that stuff wrong. And I was really, really, really tight. Um, even at quite uh, inexperiencing. And I think that's just because like having had that experience, it was like, well, that can't ever happen again. And just, yeah, it made me really knuckle down. Yeah, I think if it was me, I would have gone home and gone, oh, there's, there's something wrong with those decks. <laughs> I, think, I think the pitch is knackered. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, blaming the equipment is always tempting as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you, when you went pro, how... Um, a full time, I should say. How how many gigs were you playing, and what sort of music were you playing? Um, so, like when I first got into DJing, it was I was a drum and bass DJ, and I was a like I was going to play dr- drum and bass. Everyone else was going to hear drum and bass. I couldn't comprehend why anyone else wouldn't want to hear drum and bass. <laughs> uh, that was me before I really started playing. Out. Once I once I started playing out, the I think by that point I'd kind of diversified a little bit. Um, so I was playing like quite a bit of hip hop because basically through drum and bass, I got into DJ hype through DJ hype. I got into scratching yeah. and through scratching, got into hip back into hip hop. I've been, I've been really into hip hop as a kid with like ice tea and public enemy and tropical quest and all that kind of stuff. And, um, I mentioned my brother, uh, my oldest brother, Dan, he'd been to America a couple of times and brought back all these cassettes of like DJ clue and all these kind of things. Yeah. So I'd been exposed to hip hop quite a lot. And, um, so yeah, that was a big part of, but it's funny, like looking back, I used to play some pretty weird stuff. Um, in like bars around Nottingham on uh, on like a Tuesday night because like I guess because in the days of Alan you just bought what you liked and yeah. then that was, that was the records you had in the box so like I'd play some pretty left field stuff actually um, like weird metalheads electro B sides and stuff. It's it, I think the good thing with that though is Nottingham's quite an open minded city, mm. isn't it? And I'm sure we'll yeah. come on to the times when it isn't, but. Um, <laughs> But you can, you've probably got quite a bit of leeway there. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned about diversifying because I've never really bought records thinking, I'm not that into this, but I should probably have it for DJing. I just, I've always just like bought what I liked and, and kind of had that tunnel of vision. And that's probably one of the things where I didn't go further with it, to be honest, mm. because there's, there was just this like lack of considering what the crowd might want or need it's like i'll mm. always i'll always kind of think about them in terms of i think they're like this or i know they'll know this but i i'm still very much within my um comfort zone or interest zone yeah i mean the way i always frame it for how i dj is that i play to please the crowd but through the prism of my own tastes and fortunately i've got quite broad taste i like a lot of different genres i like quite i like stuff from very underground to quite commercial so that gives me quite a lasting but i'm i can't see the I, it baffles me when dj's play music that they actively dislike i just can't mm. understand like why be a d if you're going to do that what like go and be an accountant or something like it's a much more steady job and you'll probably hate it less like <laughs> if you're playing music you don't like like I don't, I like, for me, that's, that's like a, a weird step that I, I struggle to kind of understand why you would be a DJ if you're going to play music you don't actually like. I wonder if there's an ego element to it. 
Maybe. I think as well for many people, it just it's it's a job rather than like because I mentioned about how um, and there's you know like I don't play exactly what I like the stuff I listen to at home is very different to the stuff that I play at 90 95% of my gigs yeah. so it's not like I'm out there like preaching my personal tastes exactly but it's there's that thing of like I see it sometimes on Twitter or in WhatsApp groups where people are like oh what's the song you play that you like the least or hate the most or and where they sort of joking about having to play songs that they hate because they feel like the crowd needs demands to hear it yeah. And if they don't play it, they'll lose the gig or something. So, like, I, I kind of get it in a, in that sense, I suppose. But it's just like, I don't know. It just seems like an odd thing to be a DJ and then play music you just don't even like. Yeah, there's, there's a balance, isn't there? It's like it's mm. like with any work, you're gonna have the shitter work that means mm. you can do the more fun stuff. You know, there might be the odd gig where you do have to play a few tunes that you you really don't enjoy playing. But if they're the ones that pay a bit better. And then you can go off, you know, doing something else. I mentioned about like, obviously started out 20 odd years ago and it was all vinyl then. And now with it being digital, it's a, that's changed the parameters a little bit, I think as well, because if you went, if you had to go out and spend seven quid on a record, you're much less likely to do that for some tune you don't actually want yeah. and don't actually believe in. Whereas if you can just download it off some website for free or for 79p or whatever, that means people are much more willing to take on stuff that maybe they don't really care about because mm-hmm. it's there's no financial cost up front. And then, then once you've got it, and if people are requesting it, and it's like, well, you know, and you get insecure about whether they don't play it. So I can sort of see how I think that's part of it is it's just digital DJing has created a situation where it's so easy to have a bit of everything and there's no sort of um, no cost to doing that that yeah it makes it easier for people to end up kind of beholden to whatever shit the audience asks for which is quite often quite shit well this is why i quite like going out i mean i don't dj a lot now but when i do i quite like going out just with records i don't own serato or Mm. anything anymore mainly for the fact that someone asks you for something you say i've not got it they don't they accept that better or more easily i mean that's even true like because i'm I play off Serato on a laptop like 95% of the time and occasionally use USB. And even just having the USB makes a difference where people, you can just go, it's not on the USB, and they accept that. Whereas with a laptop, it's like, but can't you download it off YouTube? And you're like, <laughs> that's wrong on so many levels, sorry. <laughs> like, But that, that line, you get that every weekend, can't you download it off YouTube? And um, oh, God. And because people just see a laptop and think, well, my laptop connects to the internet and the internet has every piece of music that's ever been made. So why can't your laptop do that? And to be honest, like nowadays with Tidal integration with Serato, in theory, if I've got a Wi-Fi connection, it can do that. So like they're not 100% wrong anymore. Um, but it's just like, you know, sometimes just saying haven't got it is a polite way of saying absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. And, and it is a funny one as to at what point do you just become a jukebox? Yeah, exactly. And like, I think it's important that, you know, the point of having a DJ is to curate the music. And it's like, if someone makes a request, it's not that, oh yeah, sure. And on it goes three seconds later. It's like, right. There's a thing I've been thinking about a bit actually with, with requests where sometimes you get where people make a request and you don't play it straight away because maybe they've made a request for a house tune and you're currently playing boom bap hip hop. 
And so there's a journey to get from where you are to where you need to be. Yeah. And for that to make any sort of musical sense, you can't, ju- I mean, you could just jump from that to that, but it's going to be quite jarring. And so sometimes those people come back after like 20 minutes going, oh, you haven't played my song yet. And, um, and I, it's quite frustrating because it's, it's not something you can really explain at the moment, but it's like, well, every single song I've played since you made that request has been to do with your request because I'm trying to get from here to here. And that, that's like a 10 song journey to get from this point to that point for that to make musical yeah. sense. So actually every song I've played has been your request because I I'm getting from A to B, but it's like, that's quite a nuanced thing to try and explain to a drunk person at one 30 in the morning in a dark smoky <laughs> club. Um, but it's something I thought about. It's like quite often a single request kind of ch- changes. If you, if you decide to indulge it, sort of changes the direction of everything because you're trying to make a, a nice neat line from one to the other. In those situations, when you have to do that, what percentage of the time is the person still there or or cognizant of you playing that tune that they've requested? I mean, the, the second point of what you just asked there, that's a really interesting one. Like, quite, it's surprisingly common that people come back saying, when are you going to play my song? And you're like, you literally cheered when it came on. (laughs) (laughs) I had it the other week where someone came, I was DJing with DJP at this thing we do together. And someone came over, threw 20 quid into the DJ booth and was like, Drake, put Drake on. And it was the kind of, I was like, yeah, fine, we can put Drake on. And um, so we did, we put, I think it was one dance we put on like a few songs later. And then at the end of the night, they came back demanding their money back, saying, you never played Drake. And we were like, yeah, we did. We played one dance, like about three songs after you asked for it. And he's like, that's, that's a Rihanna song. And it's like, Rihanna's not even on that song. What are you talking about? So, you, you know, you deal with um, with requests. People aren't always satisfied, even if you do play their request. So, you know, and the other the other common one, slight, slight diversion from that, but that is people ask for an artist and you go, cool, yeah, yeah, I can play a Drake song. And then you play a Drake song and they're like, not this Drake song. And so in their heads, you haven't satisfied their request because you played a song yeah. they didn't want from the many hundred options you had and they didn't actually bother to specify which one they want do you think it's worse when someone asks for something inappropriate for the for the night and the vibe in a nice way or if or if they're demanding because sometimes i find it really frustrating if if someone's really nice and polite with you but they'll ask you for something and you'll be like if it's going to work at some point i'll play it and then they just keep asking you, but in that nice way, it just gets a bit more annoying each time they request. I mean, I've I've got a very thick skin or long fuse or whatever with with this because I've like I said I've done this for twenty five years or whatever now, and um, it's just part of the job. It's like I definitely don't want this interview to come across like I'm whinging about requesters because for me it's like that's just part and parcel of the kind of DJing I do. Yeah. I if I don't accept that. I'm an idiot because it's just part of the job. Um, so like people, so long as people are polite, I'm kind of okay with it. I know what you mean. That if someone keeps coming back and like, something I actually end up having to say to people quite a bit is when I've said yes to something and then they keep coming back go, like after five minutes, after 10 minutes, after 15 minutes going, when are you going to play it? When are you going to play it? It's like, eventually it's like, please don't turn this yes into a no because 
if you keep asking, I'm just not going to play it. Um, just be patient and wait until like the the time is right for me to put it on. Um, I like if people are rude, I'll just generally not play their request because it's like you're being rude. Like I don't, yeah, you know, if you're going to be a dick about it, I don't really see why I should be helpful. Um, but I like if a request makes sense, if someone's nice about it, and it like if I've got it, then probably eight times out of ten I'll play it. Um, because you know, I guess it's like you want to please people. And it, the main thing is it just make, has to make sense because yeah, you do sometimes get people come over and ask for stuff, and it's just like on what planet does like how do you think that fits in with what's going on tonight? It's it's an it's an interesting one how people's minds work on that one. Well, I, I think sometimes they don't. That's the thing. Um, hey guys, I hope you're enjoying Once a DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with SureShot Shop to create some Winter DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from winterdj.bigcartel.com and if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat-making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what you're waiting for, visit howtomakemusic.co. So just going back to digital then, how, how did you find the adoption process of digital? Were you like really quick on it or, or did you take time? Um, I, I guess I was a relatively early adopter, but not like super early. So I remember someone, I think it might have been Pete Jordan possibly, showing me Serato um, with the SL1 box. And I remember being like really intrigued by the technology, but... Having read about it and listened to it, I was like, I don't know about the sound quality on this. And so I waited for, there was the Rain, I had the Rain TTM56 scratch mixer. And then I heard that they were doing the 57, which has, which had like the Serato sound card built in. So I waited for that and bought that. And then that was my first um, Serato experience. So like, that's, I guess, like 2005, six, seven, something like that. So it's still, you know, pretty early adopter, but I wasn't like, the moment I saw it, I went out and rushed out and bought it. I waited until there was something that I felt like had a little bit better sound quality. The SL1, it was a really useful, you know, it was a big breakthrough, big, very useful tool, but it sounded like crap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was weird. It, um, my mate Hudson had it and it seemed to sound better on his Mac than if I put it through my Windows laptop. Oh, for really? Some reason. Yeah, it, it took me a long time to trust it. Like when I first started gigging out with Serato, I'd still take loads of records with me mm. just in case. And then and then in those earlier days of adoption, 
if someone had gone out purely digital and something was going wrong, I'd feel quite smug about the fact that I could play still because I had records. I mean, that, that point there is for any aspiring DJs watching, never assume that whatever medium, like if you're on USB, take three or four USBs because one of them might fail. I, I've, had, I've had, like, I've been at gigs where pretty big DJs have turned up and their USB won't load and they've got no backup. And it's like, wow. you're getting paid thousands of pounds and you've got one USB with you. What, Like, what? And if you're playing, you know, have some CDs just in case. Like, I've got basically my laptop, then I have like a bunch of USBs on me, then I have a couple of CDs that have got the Serato control horn on each, and then like an hour's worth of music on each as well. Just to, And so like, it, and I think I have a cable in there as well for like plugging my phone in for absolute last, last resort. Like, yeah. Basically always have some version of like you can get music on because you never know when your laptop's going to just die like that happens it's very unlucky if it does but it you know if there's a it's that thing if there's a 0.1 percent chance of happening it means it's going to happen at some point because you know probabilities yeah. being what they are um so yeah that's a really having that you know i think it's okay to feel smug in those situations because like you know that's what you should do. That's what any professional, if you're getting paid to do the thing, you should be being professional about it. And a professional would be prepared for the negative possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I feel comfortable with my smugness now. <laughs> Always be comfortable with smugness. It's a great feeling. <laughs> so, um, so how long were you in Nottingham then? Cause you were there for quite a few years, right? Yeah. I know I used to hear your name a lot. So I, I moved there in 96, was uni 96 to 99, then moved to London in 2011. So like, yeah, I was there, God, yeah. was it that long? Yeah, right. Yeah. So quite a long time, like 15 years or so. So were you playing at places like you mentioned Pete Jordan? So playing at Spectrum? I didn't play at Spectrum a whole lot. I played a few things for him, but I was, I was resident with Detonate for a long time. So like I mentioned, I was really into drum and bass starting out, yeah. and that was kind of I played for them a couple of times. I think I played with Peche, and it was that maybe Pendulum or someone. But like, I did a couple of events for them playing drum and bass, and then transitioned to being their like hip hop resident along with DJ Detail. Um, and yeah, then I was doing like my first ever like paid gigs were at Browns, the bar that what's that called now, Bar Bar or something now, but it was. That was there, and then I started playing at Market Bar, and I was doing Revolution, and obviously Stealth when that opened, and all, like so, they, I was playing a lot on like the bar scene, and then also at, like Detonate was my sort of like probably the coolest res residency I had because I got to play with some really good people with them. Yeah. That, was, that was a really good one. So when you say Revolution, was it the Good Revolution or the Bad Revolution? <laughs> I started at the Good Revolution, then I moved eventually to the Bad Revolution. Right. So when you when you were playing there, were you would you class yourself as open format? I'd say so. I mean, definitely now. Back then, I guess as well because I was open format. But it's interesting now because I, I play a lot of tunes now that when they came out, I just like for whatever. Re like last night, I played the song "Galvanized" by the Chemical Brothers with Q-Tip. Yeah. I remember. Like, I don't know why because I'm sure I liked it at the time, but at the time. I was like, no, don't play that. And just like didn't buy it and refused to play it. And I'd get requests because it, it went to number one and everyone was asking for it. And I'm like, and looking back and it's like, why? I think I just had like quite a strict vision of 
I was like a credible hip hop DJ for a period of time in my mind. Like it, that was how I perceived what I did. <laughs> so like I, when Eminem Lose Yourself came out, I just refused to play it. Yeah. And I don't know, like it's a really good hip hop track that was perfectly credible by a perfectly credible artist. But I didn't really, there was something about Eminem that I didn't really like. And so I never, never really played his stuff. And so I was really, really, really militant and strict about certain things. Like one of them that's aged better than the others is I used to refuse to play R. Kelly Ignition, which turned out well for me. But like, <laughs> there's certain, like, again, like at the time, I was just like, no, no, no. And I would get requested it every single week. I used to do this Thursday night at the Market Bar, which was really popular. And um, I'd get asked for that like 10 times a night and be like, no, hate that song. No, 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 no. And so I, I was really strict that like, I had this idea of this is the kind of DJ I am and this is what I do and that falls outside it, so no. And um, Whereas now I'm much more, I think I realised that these sort of arbitrary lines you put of like what's credible and what's cool and what's cheesy and are all kind of a bit nonsense really. It's just like, is it good or not? And yeah, I think it's because I was, because I'm a massive Human League fan and I think I played Don't You Want Me somewhere at like an open format party. And someone was just like appalled that I was playing something so cheesy. And I'm, I was like, this is an absolute classic. What are you talking about? And, and that was a bit of a light bulb moment of like, oh, well, I think this is an 80s classic that's just like a masterpiece of pop songwriting. They think it's a piece of cheese. So when I think something's a total piece of cheese, maybe it's actually a masterpiece of pop songwriting that I just, for whatever reason, have this arbitrary line in my brain that says, that's bad. And um, so I relaxed a lot about worrying about whether things were cool or credible or acceptable or whatever. Yeah, I think for me with that, it, it strikes a chord because there's certain stuff I wouldn't play and even some of it's stuff that I really liked. And for me, it was, I don't want them to feel like they've got control. Mm. And by them, I mean the crowd. Right. So, yeah, I didn't like, I love more money, more problems. And I would have it in my bag, but I wouldn't take it anywhere. I think with that, it was because I thought it might bring in a flurry of shiny suit requests. Mm. Things I mean, that that's I just a, didn't have. That is actually like, uh, that concept is actually very, I think that's very true. It's like there's certain things where if you just don't play it, people kind of intuit that, oh, it's not that sort of party. And then you open, like, yeah, you break the seal or you open the door or however you want to phrase it, like, and then suddenly you get, like, a million requests for that genre or that style or that, in it, in yeah. it. that is a thing that people, a crowd is quite intuitive for that sort of thing. So if, and I think a lot, this is one of the problems, I think, in modern DJing, that it kind of goes back to what we're talking about, um, about with digital DJing and everyone being having access to pretty much all the music because it's so cheap and so readily available. A lot of DJs these days are quite reluctant to say no when we've all got the power to say no. You don't have to play requests. You don't have to play a song because it's in the charts. If you think a song is shit, just don't play it and you should be good enough to still make everyone have a good time. Like, I can play... Like, I could take the 10 best songs... I played at the weekend, they got the 10 best reactions and just not play them next weekend. And everyone will still have a great time because there's a lot of music in the world and a lot of songs that are popular. And so I think people get a bit caught up in feeling like they've got to play certain things and got to play certain styles because 
something bad will happen if they don't. But actually, if you're a good DJ, you can exclude a lot of stuff and still rock the party. Yeah, like Ignition Remix is an interesting one. Um, I remember playing in Derby and my mate Matt Nice had come up from uh, London and he was playing with us at this bar and he played Ignition and I just saw how much people enjoyed it and I was like, this song's amazing. Um, and it just, it, it took him playing it in that circumstance for me to realize what it is. And it's a lot of fun. And I know what you mean. Yeah. Like the, I had that experience with like kind of tr modern trappy hip hop where I'd listen to it at home, mainly on headphones or through a laptop or something. And just like, I would just be like, I don't get it. I don't like, and mm. you know, old man going on about nineties hip hop, you know, like I, I'm always trying to avoid being that guy, basically like the sort of the dad rock of now is basically going, oh, a tribe called Quest, now Zilmatic and whatever. But um, I just didn't connect with it at all. And then I, I went to see a friend DJ at the Cuckoo Club in London and it was obviously very loud through a good system and everyone's popping bottles and it was all going off and it was just this light, this sort of light bulb thing of, oh, right, yeah, this is music for this environment. And it completely made sense all of a sudden. It was just like, oh, yeah, 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 like this, I get it now. And like, still not massively into it, but like it made sense all of a sudden. And so sometimes you just have to hear things in the club because I think that's the thing. Like a lot of hip hop music is for listening to driving the car, listening at home, whatever. And some of it is club, it's just club music. It's not really yeah. for home listening and that's totally fine. Um, and if you don't go to those clubs, then you're probably never going to, get why those songs make sense mm. so what prompted the move to london was it was it wanting to leave nottingham or was it was it a draw or was it a push um i think it was kind of a i'd got as far as i could go in nottingham sort of feeling where i was playing all the main clubs had residencies at various places doing this that and the other and like i was doing fine but like I think I just realized that I was kind of, I'd been at the same level for quite a long time. There was not really a path for me to move up from that. And um, so I felt like moving to Nottingham was the next. And to be honest, I, even then, it, I took a long time to feel confident doing that because it, I didn't move until after I'd had the Red Bull three star thing where, so I won the UK thing, I got to world final. And off, because there was quite a few promoters at the UK final, I ended up getting quite a bunch, quite a few uh, bookings in London off the back of that. Okay, let's let's just um, let's just talk about that because I I've got my t I thought it was the other way. Right. Um, so was it? So you won the the Red Bull three style, and now just for anyone listening that doesn't know, and I might need a bit of correction on this. Okay. Whereas you've got the DMC battle, which was a six minute battle, which mid to late two thousands, it suffered a bit because of people basically pressing their own music to perform sets with so it lost a lot of uh, um musicality and the essence of what a dj is mm. i think it's probably fair to say and that's not to to cast aspersions on anyone that was competing at the time it was just stylistically i think something was lost a little bit um and then Red Bull brought in the three style competition, which is, it's a longer set. Is it like 15 or 30 it, minutes? It was, it was 15 minutes when I did it. I, I'm not sure if they kept it throughout at 15 minutes, but that was what, what it was when I did it. And I think party rocking's like an element that's in that, right? Yeah. I mean, the big, the, I think their take on it was 
DMCs had got really technical. And I think like beyond what you said, I think part of the problem was it it's it kind of reached a point where like I'm a scratch nerd that watches a million battles and DVDs and all the rest of it. And I found myself watching things and being like, I can't tell who's better out of that guy and that guy because it's so complex that yeah. I'm not even sure. They're just doing these incredibly complicated triple click orbit flare, but you know, scratch patterns that I'm just like, well, they're both really, 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 really complicated. I'm not sure which one's better. And I think three style were like, well, let the Red Bull basically went, let's do three style where it's like the technical stuff is an element, but in service of party rocking. So, yeah. um, they had like a scoring system where it was like crowd reaction, originality of music choices, um, technical skill, party right. And then they, they had like, so it would be like you'd score out of 20 for that thing, out of 20 for that thing. And then th you top that up and that would be who was the, ch who was the champion. So it wasn't, and it was weighted slightly. So some things were more valuable than others, but it wasn't just who's technically the best DJ, which I think DMC kind of is much more about that. And yeah. which makes it in a sense, a purer DJing battle, but for a, for an audience of lay people, it's really hard to, when you get to a certain level, it's really hard to tell like what's actually going on because it's just so complicated. It's some of the stuff that goes, whereas I think if you're just like trying to rock a party and using some skills to show off a little bit, that was a bit more of something that a mass audience could, could connect with. Yeah, and, and with DJing, you are ultimately performing for an audience. So I think it's important that they brought that back into it and it it probably did a lot for battling and competitive DJing, mm. yeah. bringing that back in. So was it the first, was it the inaugural three style then that you won? Yeah, All right, so I didn't win overall. I won the UK final. Um, so I I think they'd done it previously for a few years in Canada. Because the guy who's the, this guy, Kenny McIntyre, who kind of, I think he started it and they ran it in Canada for a few years. And then I think mine was the first year where they did it internationally. So the final was in Paris um and yeah so basically like they had four regional heats uh like the northern one which was in sheffield i guess a london one a wales one and a scotland one um and um yeah then basically the two winners the two top people from each of those went and then they had eight people in the final in the uk and yes sure. somehow I, I ended up winning that so <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah it was um it was an interesting one because the, the, what was notable, I thought about three stale, is that that first year, nobody really knew what a three stale three style set sounded like because it never really been done before. So mm. when you got to the UK final and when you got to the world final, there was a lot of difference between how people did it. And like, for instance, you mentioned about people in DMC editing their own stuff together to create these things. And that's something that's a big part of, that became a big part of freestyle is like people using lots of chopped up edits and creating things with like, you know, different sections so they could jump from things very, very fast. But actually the set I did was all just the original songs um, played on a laptop, but like I hadn't done any edits. I hadn't created any sort of clever bits where the, you know, I, so anything that was the acapella was an acapella. And then if anything yeah. was instrumental, was the instrumental and anything. So it was only like in when you watched other people do stuff where they, they got really deep into the preparation section of tuning up their records and editing records. That So then 
about a few years later, there was kind of a three style style sound where sure. the sets started sort of narrowing towards what people thought a three style set was, which was interesting because and it was kind of a shame. I thought that it became that way that people were like, "Oh, we've got to do a little." a uh, little tone play section where we hit the bat, hit the pads and then, oh, look, it's next episode, drop in next episode. And like that sort of thing would start happening where everyone would do it. Like, there was like a, a formula that, that sort of developed over the course of maybe five years. I suppose it's kind of like with MMA where you can't just be a judo player or a mm. boxer. You've got to have a bit of everything yeah. to know how to win. And I think that's the thing is that what people saw was that like the people who did stuff in year one, two, three, whatever, were doing certain things. And so everyone gravitated towards the things that had been successful. But the downside of that mm. was it ended up sort of flattening the creativity in a particular way. Like, so although it became more advanced across the board, it meant that everyone was doing kind of the same set, like stylistically. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so you won that and you said there was some promoters there. Yeah. So like, um, a load of my mates turned up, which was great. A few people came down from Nottingham, loads of people in London. Cause I, lots of mates had moved to London before. It was at Coco in Camden. And so I, Ty, uh, rest in peace, he was hosting it. And I think I was like third or fourth on, which was quite nice out of, so like, I didn't have the pressure of going first, but I wasn't like coming on when the audience was a bit bored at the end. I was like yeah. sweet, in the sweet spot in the middle. And the people who'd gone before had been pretty good. But like, when I came out on the stage, there was like a proper roar from the people who come to support me and Ty was like someone brought a crowd with him and that obviously made an impression on a lot of the promoters there because like that's what promoters want is someone who brings a crowd I mean in reality yeah. when I then went and played at whatever gigs and yeah you know, I bring two people with me or something because <laughs> <But>, uh, <laughs> you know it's not quite the same as being in the final of the of, uh, Rebel 3 style but so I think that in itself just the fact that like I got a big reaction when I went on stage just Turned to his head. And then the fact that I won as well and did a good set, um, people probably just saw that and were like, well, let's give this guy, you know, get him in. And that basically gave me a bit of confidence that I've actually gotten in here because it's, I'm not very good at like hustling for gigs. And it's funny because I'm like, yeah. I'm probably one of the busiest DJs in London these days, but I'm terrible at hustling. It's just something that's kind of come with being around for a long time and just being consistent and good at what I do and reliable and building up over, t over time a network of people who want to book me. But if I lost all those gigs tomorrow and had to hustle for work, I, that terrifies me because I'm not naturally someone who goes out and like asks or like yeah. pesters people and stuff. So I'd been waiting for like some sort of sense that I had an inn in London and that felt like it when I when I started getting like five six seven bookings in different places around the city I was like okay that gives me a, a foot in the door so then I sorted out a flat and uh, and moved down and, and even then it was a real struggle for the first few years it, I nearly moved back home at, back back to Nottingham after a year because it was I was finding it so hard to get established I think um I did a couple of years in London and I think it's interesting because I'd I think when people say it's unfriendly, I, I, I would disagree with that based on my experience. Mm. But what I would say is it's, it can be a very lonely place very easily. Yeah. Um, did you find it a stark contrast compared to being in somewhere quite friendly like Nottingham? Um, I mean, as I mentioned, I've, I have a lot of friends who had moved to London in that period of time. So um, right, yeah. 
that immediately meant that it wasn't like I was leaving all my mates to come to London where I didn't have any mates. I, I, I basically just started hanging out with the, with the old Nottingham friends who were in London and, um, and over time sort of picked up various mates and waifs and strays along the way in London as well. So <laughs> that side of things wasn't such a problem, but I, I know what you mean about like, it's funny cause it's such a big city. It's there's an, there's an anonymity, which in some ways is quite appealing in other ways is mm. a little bit jarring. Cause when you live in somewhere like Nottingham, that's like a relatively small city of, I don't know, three, 400,000 people. If you're going out on the scene in Nottingham, there's only so many good clubs. There's only so many good bars. And so you start just, after a few months, you start just recognising faces and seeing familiar, and maybe over time you just get chatting to them because you've seen them every weekend for the last four months. And so, you know, that just sort of naturally happens. Whereas in London, you could go out every night for a year and hardly see anyone that you recognise by the end of it because so many different people are going to so many different places. So unless you just went to the same venue over and over and over again, you might see some of the same regulars and stuff, but like, you know, it's 10 million people or whatever here, plus how many tourists come here per year. And so like, you don't get that same sense of seeing the same faces over and over again. And through that familiarity feeling like you're part of, unless you're just going to a very specific set of venues and, and seeing those same, same regulars, I guess. Yeah. So, so were you were you quite quick to establish enough gigs to keep you going, sort of full time? Um, to be honest, no. Um, I was coming back to Nottingham loads. Um, I kept on doing a, like a Monday and a Tuesday student night. Um, that I'd travel up to stay with a mate on the Monday night. Then I'd either come back on Tuesday night or stay back, stay over and come back on Wednesday morning. And without that, I don't think it would have worked because I like I was. Like I say, I, I was just not very good. I didn't really know how to because I, how my Nottingham thing had happened is exactly the same same way as how the London thing ended up panning out, which is that over time I just accumulated a bunch of people and venues and stuff who trusted me and knew me and knew I could deliver. And so, in the sort of 10, 12, 13 years I was in Nottingham, that built up to a point where I was very, very busy and doing very well. And then I moved to London and basically had like a couple of guest sets here and there. I got like a fortnightly thing somewhere, um, but like was really struggling to make any sort of inroads because I just didn't know, I didn't know how to start. Like I'd, I'm yeah. not, I've, just, I've never really learned how to go out and hustle for gigs i'm sure it's not that complicated you just go and pester people and be a bit annoying and eventually someone give you a gig but um yeah i i it took me a good few years to get and it was kind of like that because i got a residency at ministry of sound after a, few, a couple of years of being in in london and that was yeah that, that was that's been very helpful in the years since then although even then like that created a weird weird sort of split where i kind of had to keep my residency stuff secret because it wasn't didn't reflect very well if I was doing the whole ministry of sound thing. So that, that was a weird, weird thing as well, I suppose, thinking about it. So in terms of your brand as a DJ. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is something I was wondering if we'd be able to talk about today a little bit, but it's like for anyone who's like a who's a DJ starting out, like I think it's really important to understand what sort of DJ you want to be. And then be that sort of DJ. And that might mean to the exclusion of doing certain gigs. Cause if you want to be an artist DJ that 
is, and that's kind of how I came into it. Was like, I, I was like, I want to be a you know drum and bass DJ, and you know, I wanted to be the kind of DJ you see on a on a festival poster. That's you know, and I think most DJs starting out, that's what they have in mind, and then most of the gigs are for resident DJs who their job is basically to play to the style of the venue and pander to the crowd's tastes and kind of be a bit more in service of something else rather than as an artist DJ, it's like, here's me. Do you like that? Come on, you know, buy a ticket for my show. I'm an artist DJ. And like, I think a lot of people get confused that being a resident DJ and being an artist DJ are quite different things and they're quite different skill sets. And if you want to be an artist DJ, I would say keep the day job and just turn down the residency gigs that mean you're going to probably end up compromising what you play, probably end up compromising how you DJ. Um, and so I got in this weird sort of um, split where the Ministry of Sound stuff and the gigs that I got that were sort of related to that were one thing. But then like my actual bread and butter that was paying the bills was something very different. And that was kind of this weird push-pull that I had going on for a few years that was quite it's quite um, it's quite tough mentally, and that's one of the reasons why I ended up quitting Ministry of Sound. And like we can get into all that stuff with the mental health stuff, and but that that sort of tension between what's actually paying the bills versus what is it I actually really want to do artistically that that was quite hard to resolve. And um, I think that's something that a lot of people underestimate is the importance of knowing what kind of DJ you want to be and actually pursuing that to the exclusion of the things that maybe don't serve that well. So you say, so you quit ministry. I quit ministry in about 2015. I was, I was, I mean, I, we haven't, I don't think we've mentioned on, I'm, I'm now, I'm going to be five years sober in about a month. And I was a raging alcoholic looking back. If I'm completely honest about yeah. it, I was drinking a lot and I was doing a lot of drugs. And so, and with Ministry of Sound, I was traveling a lot. And so there was a lot, there was, you know, I'd be flying somewhere, get hammered as part of the fun of the weekend and then come home on like no hours sleep and wonder why I felt like shit for the rest of the week. And it's like, what a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> and then also you've got all this stuff going on about like, well, I'm doing this gig to pay the rent, but I kind of don't, I've, I've got this opportunity here with Ministry, but if I only do that sort of stuff, I can't really afford to live in London. Uh, and like, because one of the weird things that people don't necessarily realize is that like when you're at sort of base camp of the more sort of credible dance music scene stuff obviously everyone hears about you know headline djs getting paid 200 grand to do a festival or 50 grand to do a club set and all this kind of stuff and then everyone sort of assumes that there's like this linear line down to like, oh, the residents must mm-hmm. be getting a couple of grand or something then. It doesn't work like that. Like, because <laughs> the, the, like, the people who run the brands, and the, it, there's like, there's so many people who'll do it for free that if you're getting paid a couple of hundred quid to be anywhere near the bill, then you're doing okay, actually. Um, yeah. And so like, yeah, it, it it's quite a it's quite a tough thing when you're trying to break into... Or trying to sort of succeed in the sort of like I've been saying artist DJ thing where you're trying to if you've not got loads of money like this is one of the reasons why it's like you get quite a lot of DJs who've come from quite well well to do backgrounds because they can afford to turn the stuff down that's a bit more prosaic and they can afford to do stuff for free or do stuff for hardly anything and if you've actually got to pay the rent yourself 
it's yeah that, that creates quite a few difficult challenges really hey guys i hope you're enjoying once a dj i wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on so i've teamed up with sure shot shop to create some once a dj 45 rpm adapter clamps these are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup these are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from oncedj.bigcartel.com and if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides, and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what are you waiting for? Visit howtomakemusic.co. Yeah. So so when you decided to go sober, did you seek any help with that or were you just able to go, now this isn't working and stop? So it's funny. Um, when I actually stopped, it was... I actually found it relatively easy, I think, um, which is surprising to me because I was drinking a lot and doing a lot of drugs. And um, But there'd been a process of several years before that where I'd obviously been wrestling with it and trying to get somewhere with it. And I'd, I'd always do things like sober October and dry January because I obviously knew that I was overindulging and I, that was that was a sort of a, a good opportunity to take a break and um, give us off that. But then... I did. I remember once calling a hotline because I was basically depressed for a long time, and I called this hotline thinking that it they want to sort out my depression and maybe give me some sort of pill that might make me feel better. And I just had this idea that I'll tell them that I'm depressed. They'll prescribe something, and then it'll be better. And there, they had a little phone interview with me, and then they sent me to see an alcohol guidance counselor. And I was like really annoyed and a bit offended and kind of, and I went to one session and the guy, he said something that stuck with me actually that um, was like, you know, people don't end up here by accident. Like you might not think it, but like, you know, you're here, you got here somehow. And that's like, th- there's a reason for that. For And anyway, he sent me like, I think the task was just to basically not drink for the following week and then come back. And I obviously did drink during that following week. And then I made some excuse to not go and that I didn't, I thought it was the wrong thing. And, and that was the only session I ever had with him. But like, I think that says that I was obviously like, I knew something was up a good few years before I actually quit. But when I actually came to quit, I think I just put in enough work with reading and journaling and genuine reflection and being honest with myself and like, that when it came to it, I found it, it was kind of like, okay, I'm done with that now. And I, I think that's part of it is that I'm, I'm quite a, um, when I commit to something, I commit to it very, very strongly. And so, you know, like I mentioned about with the DJing, when I made a, I made a 
what I thought was I made a fool of myself with that thing when a mate put me in a gig um, and I did one mix and screwed up. So like my reaction to that was like, right, 100% throw yourself into this and just became really, really, really good at beat matching. And then when I got into scratching, I just was doing hours and hours and hours and hours of scratching. So like I became pretty good at scratching. And I think like when it came to, right, I'm going to stop drinking. So there was just like something about me was like, that's what I'm doing then. And you like once in a blue moon, I'll be at a meal and be like, oh, a glass of red wine would be nice with this, to be honest. But like, it's not like, a oh my God, I've got to leave because I need this thing. It's just like a sort of a wistful, oh yeah, that would, that would set this off. But hey, what are you going to do? So had you experienced DJing dry before that then, or would you, would you always drink? Wouldn't always drink. So I used to drive right. when I was in Nottingham. So I'd like, cause I used to, you know, DJ in Sheffield and Derby and places. And so like I'd drive, to, you know, Lincoln and stuff. So I'd drive to those gigs most times. And quite often I'd drive, like one of the things I liked about living in Nottingham actually was that if I wanted to not drink, it was very easy to do that because I'd just drive to the gig and then you've got no choice because you've got to get your car home. Yeah. Um, and once I moved to London and I sold my car because having a car in London is just insanely expensive, that immediately was like, you can go to a gig thinking, I'm not going to drink tonight, but there's always someone who wants to do a shot. There's always someone who wants to go out afterwards. There's always someone who's like on it and wants you to be on it too because then they've got someone to party with. And... So the amount of times where I'd go out with the intention to not drink and then halfway through the set, I'd be like, ah, fuck it. And then stay out all night. And so like that, that temptation is pretty much omnipresent when you're DJing. And it's quite, one of the things I've really enjoyed about sobriety is the complete removal of that, the mental energy that you have to expend to think about Am I going to drink tonight? Should I drink tonight? If I do drink tonight, maybe if I just stick to beer, that'll be fine. Oh, if I, but if I have beer, I'll have to go to the toilet loads and I'm DJing, so that's a problem. So maybe if I, maybe if I just drink shots because they're a small amount of liquid, if I just have four or five shots to get loose, and you do all this weird, there's just this chatter going on in the back of your mind throughout the day and throughout the night. And, and like, once I stopped drinking, it was like, well, I never have to think about that ever again. Like, the decision has yeah. already been made. So it just freed up all this wasted mental energy that was going on about that. It's just a, it's a funny thing. Like I, I've, I think I clocked that about six or seven or eight months in that I never, I never have to think about that at the moment. Like that's nice. But it's when you're a heavy drinker or, you know, if you've got any problem with drink or drugs or whatever, I think you spend a lot of your time wondering about whether you should or how you're going to or, what you know, if I do in what way, where, who's going to be out, what's going to, you know, and all these kind of questions. That's just like such a complete waste of brain space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's some really good stuff that you're raising there. Um, so after going sober and quitting ministry, did you then have kind of a dry period in terms of gigs? Like, did you have to build it back up or? No, I mean, at that, at that point I was like, I had a pretty steady set of residencies around London. Uh, I've been in London since 2011, and I, this was about 2015 that I left ministry. And I made a very conscious decision at that point that I was going to stop. Because when I was with ministry, I was still making music. and Because I, I put a load of tunes out. I was on uh, Utah Saints label, Sugar Beat, for a few tracks. And I had my own label, Weird Science, which was with Pete Jordan from Spectrum, who we spoke about earlier. And we, we did a club night and a label. And 
and I had a bunch of stuff on a few decent labels, but I didn't really enjoy the process of making music. And I found it really draining, quite frustrating. And also I was doing it very much like if I make this sort of stuff, that should drive bookings to this sort of stuff, which actually didn't really transpire in any meaningful way. And so I was like, well, if I just stop DJing at ministry, stop pursuing that sort of like, I'm going to be a house DJ thing and stop worrying about making music in service of trying to push that side of my career forward and just focus fully on being an open format DJ, which I'm, you know, don't want to sound big headed, but I'm pretty fucking good at it. Um, and not many people are actually that good at mixing lots of genres really well. Yeah. And so I was like, well, just like, I, I, I kind of, I think there was just, if I was being completely honest with myself, it's like, I was a good house DJ, but I was a really, really good open format DJ. So why not just put all my energy into the thing I'm really, really good at and then not waste half of my time making music in service of a thing that I'm not actually that much better than most. I'm probably like about above average to good as a house DJ. And so I'm doing all this energy and pushing it to a thing where I'm not remarkable at. That doesn't really make sense. Why not? do this other thing which I can be remarkable at and then I'll do and it and it's actually worked out really well I've been I've you know my career's gone from strength to strength since then and it's I think it's that thing of just being honest about like what's your actual strengths and weaknesses focus on the the ones that you can really you know make the most of and then it's just the the other thing as well is just being just having a better work-life balance where I'm not spending you know, because obviously I'm out mo- you know, most nights of the week doing DJing, but then I'm not then also in the daytime stuck in a studio six hours a day. And then yeah. there's, it's very hard to get any sort of a life around that if you're doing both of those things. Mm. And um, and so in, in your situation now, you've, there's this kind of like social DJ in Mount Rushmore thing going on, isn't there? There's like you, there's Blakey, there's DJP, <laughs> there's Too Smooth. You've got this kind of crew and there's there's a lot of, DJ knowledge and skill um, in that sort of crew. Have you guys all been been matey for years, or has it come about through doing the same gigs? Or um, so yeah, those guys are all like I suppose in the sort of in the length of my life, they're all relatively new mates. And like obviously, I'd heard of Blakey through the battling stuff from years ago, yeah. but I only really got to know him in relatively recent years. Martin, he's been at ministry for a long time, and we met through ministry like. 10, 11 years ago. And I remember we first really chatted when we bumped into each other at Heathrow Airport on the way both to DJ for ministry things and and just sort of got to know each other through that. And what kind of gradually happened, we all started linking up um, for just like a meal every so often. We'd go for lunch or dinner and there'd be the guys you mentioned, like me, P, Martin and Blakey. And then sometimes that. And Rob, yeah, Rob Percy, Andy Pennell, Yoda. And so like this group of us who would kind of, hang out and then it was just really nice just being able to just sort of shoot the shit about DJ stuff and about music and all the different things that kind of go with that and so we've all kind of got to got to know each other quite well through all that that sort of thing so like P especially because he lives literally like five minutes around the corner from me and we've become really good mates in the last few years but I actually probably only met him I don't know three four five years ago He's in LA at the moment doing they're doing their soul train thing today, uh, with beat source and stuff. The him and volatile and that are oh wow. Yeah. Amazing. Um 
so the other thing that I just wanted to get into, because I'm mindful of time, okay. um, you've given some of your time to a mental health festival over the yeah. years as well, haven't you? Yeah, so um, there's a charity called Get Ahead, which is, like, like I say, wellness mental health thing that my brother started. Um, and they they did they do like an annual festival where it's like a 24-hour thing and it celebrating, you know, all, all different aspects of, you know, just basically trying to, th- the idea was that like how to get ahead without burning out was the concept of the, the, the name. And like originally it was aimed very specifically on uh, entrepreneurs and it's kind of broadened to be more about um, just people in general. And so I was yeah. brought in to do, um, I spoke on a couple of panels for them and then also did their podcast for a little while where I interviewed various people about stuff. So, you know, just chatting about people's, you know, the challenges they've had with, um, with, the, with the mental health, with with different things in life, and um, it's one of those things where I think if you actually speak to people about this stuff, everyone's got their own experiences of struggles and strife that they've had, or that people very close to them have had, because that's you know that's life, and um, it's it's always interesting really getting into this sort of stuff with people because it's such a universal. I think like nobody. As, you know, it's very easy to see people from a distance and think, oh, that person's got it all worked out or that person's got it easy. Everyone's got stuff going on um, of different sorts, uh, whether it's internal or external, like everyone's got their own battles they're fighting. Yeah, it's all relative, isn't it? I, I remember having a conversation with someone a few years ago, a friend of mine who's a counsellor, and I said, like, I shouldn't be feeling sad because people have got things worse than me. And she was like, yeah, but that means by that rationale, you're saying you shouldn't have the right to be happy because there's people that are, yeah. that have got a better situation and stuff. And it was, it was a really good point. And it just, it, it plays into that thing that it is all perspective. And because someone's got X, Y, and Z, it doesn't mean that they're comfortable or happy with their circumstance. Yeah, yeah it's because it, it's unique to everyone. And there's a great documentary, I think it's called The Work um and it's basically these sort of group therapy things they do inside it might be san quentin prison it was like some some american prison really high security prison and civilians go in and join in these groups therapy sessions with all these prisoners who have all done these you know done horrific things to be in those and it's fascinating because basically the thing that you kind of end up learning from it is it kind of doesn't matter what your struggle is whether it's something that you maybe think is a little bit petty or petty is the wrong word, but that you maybe think is quite minor because it's still your struggle. That's still your burden. That's still the thing you're trying to work through. And whatever that is to you, that's the challenge. That's the work. That's the thing you've got to get through. And so getting into a sort of a, I shouldn't feel this because that person is, has got it worse kind of misses the point. Cause it's like, well, we are all, mm. we can only deal with what is us. And it's not a competition. It's not like there's not like some threshold that above that you should be happy, below that you should be sad. There's like, um, it's just a lot of it's just we're all working through the shit we've been through in life. Yeah, this is it. This is it. Just one other thing that I wanted to talk about before we go is um, your fondness for ducks. Like I was on your Reddit and I saw that there's a lot of pictures of ducks. Where, Where does this come from? Um, so I live 
in Bow in East London, which they've got a really great park there. I don't know if you can hear my, my stomach just did a massive rumble. I'm, I'm, that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was on. <laughs> amazing. Um, so um, I live really near Victoria Park, which is an amazing park in East London. Got a massive lake there. And so over the years, and I, I lived by the canal for like 10 years um, before I moved to this flat. And I just kind of got a big part of my sort of self-care routine for want of a better term is just become feeding the ducks and um i just you know quite often if i go for a run i'll have a little pocket of uh duck food in my in my running jacket and go and have a coffee and go and feed the ducks and so it got to the point now where like quite a few of the ducks i know by sight and <laughs> um a few ducks and geese have got names there was a pair of swans which i think have been moved on because uh but they I, I got to know them quite well and um yeah they it, it's and especially through the lockdowns that was a really big i think that is when it really sort of became a big central part of my online identity for a while mm-hmm. because there wasn't a whole lot to do other than go and feed the ducks and take photos of it and put it out there and um and that also that when i was on because during the pandemic i was on i was streaming on twitch quite a bit and that became like a thing where if people had been, you know, do you know how Twitch works where you get like channel points and then you can redeem them for like, maybe you can make a request if you spend a thousand channel points and you get channel points by just watching for more minutes. Right. And so people could redeem channel points to add like transition from watching me DJing to there. There'd be a nice close up of some geese doing whatever or something. <laughs> and it, that was just like, for whatever reason, that just became like what my channel was best known for. It's just, there'd be like music playing while you're watching swans mooching around Victoria Park Lake. Um, but yeah, so that's like, that's just sort of become, I, I don't do it as much now just because I think I'm so busy and I kind of know, I kind of know when I'm too busy because I've not fed the ducks for over a week. Yeah. Yeah. So that's become quite a nice early warning system for you working too hard. I think it's it's good to have something that's just totally detached from everything else that you do. Like my thing is my lawn. We moved house and and the lawn was an absolute mess and we got a new lawn and and then like, you know, I make sure it's sprinklered, I mow it, I edge it, give it more care and attention than I do most things in my life. <laughs> and like, I don't like it when people like put things on it that are going to like go into it or anything. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like, it's like, yeah, being in the garden. I mean, like it's, it's that thing like nature and the natural world and all that is i think that's a very important part of general mental well-being and so having like like with you know with a lawn or with house plants or something like that having something that you care for and nurture and help stay healthy is just a, a i think that's a good thing for people i've only recently started getting a few house plants and like I managed to kill one already, which was good going. Um, but the other three have survived so far. So, you know, um, that I think is you know, a silly little thing, but it's it, you've, helping something thrive and survive is it's good for you for some, on some level, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when it gets you just away from a screen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a big thing, isn't it? Like, it's funny, isn't it? Like we've, because we're, I'm guessing you're a similar age to me. And like, I grew up where, mobile phones didn't exist and yeah. we all managed to fill the day somehow and now it's like it's such attractive i'm going to show you something that not many people have seen uh i've got 
this thing here, it's got a little, I have post-it notes all over the place there. So this one here says ideas are useless without execution because I'm very good at having ideas, very bad at actually doing them. <laughs> um, but this thing, a phone fits nicely in there and you close that, and you put a little timer on and then you cannot get the phone out for 10 minutes, an hour, two hours, whatever. So if I'm, nice. if I catch myself just like stuck when I should be doing something else, or if I want to have a mix or something like that tool, I think it was DJ CB, I think, I think is his name. Um, he put me onto that idea and it's just such a simple thing that, and it, what's really interesting with that is that after about five minutes, you get an urge to, oh, I'll just check my phone. Oh, I can't check my phone. And you realize it was just like a reflex. Mm. And yeah, so like being out amongst nature or having a, you know, something that you do like mowing the lawn or painting or whatever that isn't screen led is such a useful thing, I think, because we all just get lost in these weird little tractor beams. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's been great, Will. I'm mindful of time, as I say. And um, I think what I tend to round these podcasts off with is uh, what would your main piece of advice be for a DJ? But we covered that off a bit earlier anyway, in terms of knowing knowing which kind of path you want to go on. Um, so that's been lovely and I've really enjoyed this conversation. Excellent. So thanks very much for your time. Where can people find you on the socials? Uh, so I'm pretty much only on Instagram these days, which is at DJ Santero. Um, I'm pretty much, I, I, I post all sorts of shit on there. So they, yeah, I'm, I'm busy on that one, but I've managed to leave Twitter and Facebook behind pretty successfully. Um, yeah, and then, yeah, I post um, mixes to mixcloud.com slash Santero. Great stuff. And I'll pop those links in the in the show notes as well. So yeah, thank you very much for your time today and I hopefully speak to you soon. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Will. That's okay. Thanks for listening to the Once a DJ podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests, please just get in touch with us at onceadjpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at onceadjpodcast. Take care and we'll speak to you soon.